0: Isn't it possible to explain away Jesus' resurrection if his disciples were hallucinating? Is it also possible that they could have stolen the body, or maybe Jesus didn't even really die in the first place? Can naturalistic explanations account for why so many people mistakenly believed in Jesus' resurrection? That's what we're going to be discussing today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee.
1: This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, an apologetics podcast to help equip Christians to engage the culture through biblical, critical thinking. Your hosts for this podcast are Robbie Lashua and Tyler Hurley. Robbie is pastor of apologetics at Desert Springs Community Church, as well as professor of apologetics, worldview, and ethics at Mission Bible Institute. He is a graduate of Phoenix Seminary, as well as a graduate of the Master's in Christian Apologetics program at Biola University. Tyler is currently earning his undergraduate degree in theology at Grand Canyon University and currently serves as an apologetics intern at Desert Springs Community Church.
0: Hello, I'm your host, Robbie Lashua here today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. Thank you for being with us today. Um, Today, it's just me. Uh, Tyler is not here because... Last week, Tyler got married to his longtime girlfriend, Maddie. Uh, couldn't be more happy for the, the two of them. It was an awesome ceremony, uh, but Tyler obviously is going to be gone for a little while as he's on his honeymoon and getting settled into his new marriage, um, but couldn't be more excited. So congratulations, Tyler and Maddie, on your marriage. We're looking forward to how God uses you and um, what he does in and through you to impact other people for Christ. So it's just me today, um, but we've got to really really fun topic to talk about. Um, Some people have come up with alternative theories on what actually happened in the first century To explain why some people were mistakenly believing that Jesus rose from the dead. So, we're gonna get into talking about that. But before we do, we always like to start the show with a coffee tip. And I've got an interesting coffee tip from one of our listeners, my friend Doug, who lives out in uh, Virginia. Uh, Doug actually, he used to be a uh, college sponsor when I was in a college group uh, back in college, back in like, man, it was probably like 2005, 2006. Uh, But he's been listening. Uh, out from Virginia and Doug now is a beekeeper and so he, he emailed me this tip saying how he's always looking for information and in articles about honeybees and he came across this idea that bees really help with uh, coffee growth, and, and um, production of coffee plants. So this article uh, talks about how when, when bees are pollinating coffee plants, because uh, coffee plants can self-pollinate, or sometimes the wind um, pollinates them, they don't have to have bees. But when bees are present, coffee beans can yield up to 60% more beans than they would without bees present. That is amazing. Like That is a huge percentage of growth and of, of crop yield. Um, he said that each flower requires 20 to 40 indi- individual visits by a bee. All right, Each flower requires 20 to 40 individual visits by a bee, which results in one cherry on the coffee plant. One cherry results in two coffee beans. Okay, so think about this. 20 to 40 visits by an individual bee which will result in one cherry, which will result in two coffee beans. And when you do all the math, that means your average morning cup of coffee requires 1,000 to 2,000 bee visits. Thank God for bees, am I right? Like that is amazing, 1,000 to 2,000 bee visits in order to produce one cup of coffee coffee I thought that that was uh, fascinating um, I'm gonna put up a article and in, in the show notes from science news and it goes over this idea of, of bees helping pollinate uh, coffee plants especially in South America so be sure to check that out but also um, man I just thank God for creating bees they do so much for us and one of the amazing things they do is help produce more of the best drink on the planet which is coffee so Doug thanks so much for sending in that tip. Um, Wish we could hang out. Uh, I know that you listen usually on Friday mornings. so thanks again for listening, and thanks for sending in those tips, man. Really appreciate you. All right, we're going to get into the topic today. Now, just to recap, we've been going over evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. We talked about the existence of the church on Sunday morning. We talked about Jesus' brother being convinced that he was God, Jesus' enemy, Paul, being convinced that he was God, and Jesus' disciples being convinced that he was God. Now, um, we also uh, talked about where's his body, right, which is an argument for the empty tomb of Jesus, that that his body was gone, nobody's ever found it. Um, and th- there's also another argument that um, Jesus died of Roman crucifixion. And we're not going to go through all of the evidence for that, but the, the crucifixion of Jesus under Pontius Pilate is one of the most well-attested historical facts that we know of. Um, if you read even atheist scholars on this, they all agree, no doubt, for sure, this guy named Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. I've got quotes from Gerd Ludeman, uh, Paula Fredrickson, Bart Ehrman. Everybody agrees for sure, historically, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And uh, some of the reasons we know this is because Josephus talks about it, uh, Tacitus uh, talks about it. So it's historically attested even. Without the New Testament, there are other people, uh, first, second century historians who wrote about it. Uh, So with these facts in mind, that Jesus appeared to his brothers appeared to his enemy, Paul, and appeared to his friends, the disciples, convincing all of them that he rose from the dead, that the body's never been found, the tomb's empty, and that for sure he died, Um, we're going to analyze the best alternative theories to what could have happened. Because those are kind of these facts of history right? Nobody's ever found the body. You have no evidence of that anywhere. Everybody says it was gone. Even the enemies of Jesus said it was gone, right? Um, so if, if you haven't listened to the episodes we've done prior to this on the resurrection, you should, but now we're going to evaluate the alternative naturalistic hypotheses for Jesus, maybe, uh, for people believing that Jesus rose from the dead uh, when he actually didn't. Now, a lot of people will take the posture that, um, People don't come back from the dead, right? And, and I, I have to agree with this. I don't think that people generally come back from the dead. Um, I think it's happened uh, one time in, in this manner that Jesus did it. Um, now, again, people will say, well, didn't he raise you know a little girl from the dead? Didn't he raise uh, Lazarus from the dead? Yes, but they died again. Um, so it's kind of a, it's, it's like a resuscitation. They didn't get this new resurrected body is what I'm after. Um, but Jesus did. Jesus had a new resurrected body and scripture tells us that he's the first fruits of what will become. And so th- this type of a resurrection has only occurred one time in history, and it was Jesus. So I don't think resurrection happens all the time. But but people who are um, skeptical of Christianity, they they begin with a presupposition that naturalistic things can't occur, right? Or sorry, supernatural things can't occur. They're naturalists. They say, listen, miracles don't happen. Therefore, the resurrection didn't occur. And I just don't think that that's very good thinking. Uh, we should look at the evidence and we should go where the evidence leads. Not, before we even start investigating the evidence, um, uh, mis- or uh, rule out any possibilities that have to do with miracles because our worldview doesn't allow for miracles. We should be open-minded and look at the evidence and where it leads. So, um, just knowing that going in with the naturalistic theories, they all presuppose that miracles can't occur, therefore the resurrection didn't happen. But they have to answer these facts of history, that something happened to change the disciples, to change Jesus' skeptical brothers, to change an enemy. The body wasn't there, and for sure he died. So, how do we account for all of those things happen, plus the existence of the church and what Christianity's done for the world for the last 2,000 years? So, the best theory, <clears throat> um, the 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 most popular theory today on what occurred, was that people hallucinated that they saw a risen Jesus. All right, the hallucination theory. The disciples must have hallucinated that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. Because, as we as we went through, they really believed it. They were willing to die for it, so we know it wasn't a lie, because usually people will back away from a lie that they created. So they really believed it, but this theory proposes that the disciples were mistaken, and it was a hallucination that they had seen, not the actual resurrected um Jesus. So the argument goes that when people are grieving a loved one, oftentimes they they see visions or hallucinations of that loved one, and that's probably what happened with the disciples. Now, there are a number of problems with this. Um, The the APA Dictionary of Psychology um, says that this is what a hallucination is. Quote, A false sensory perception that has the compelling sense of reality despite the absence of an external stimulus. That is what a hallucination is. A hallucination is when a person is having an internal perception of something that's not actually out in the real world. Okay, and now it's really fascinating. There are different kinds of hallucinations. Um, there's scene hallucinations. There's sound hallucinations. Touch, smell, sense of movement. Right. There are different types of ways you can hallucinate uh, the different senses that that you have. Now, typically, hallucinations occur in one of these modes, not in multiple mode hallucinations. All right. So usually, a hallucination is people see something or people hear something it's rare that they hear something see something smell something and touch something. that's all a hallucination all right so that's important as we're gonna we're gonna discuss <clears throat> but also um, in 1 Corinthians 15 3 through 8, Paul gives us this creed that goes back to somewhere between six months to three years after the events of Jesus' crucifixion. And people in Jerusalem were saying that Christ died uh, according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, right, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve, and then to 500 brethren at one time, and then to James and all the apostles, and then to Paul. Okay, so now think, think about this. He appeared to Peter by himself, but then he appeared to all his disciples, right, to the, the twelve. Um, can groups experience hallucinations is the question we want to ask. Is group hallucination a thing that actually has occurred or we've ever observed? And the short answer to that is no. Um, Group hallucinations can't occur because hallucinations are mental events and you can't share a hallucination with somebody else. Why? Because a hallucination, by definition, is an internal thing that's happening to you and there's no external stimulus out there in the real world to refer to. So um, one of my professors at Biola, Michael Icona, um, he he would say – you know, Is it possible to be dreaming, uh, having an awesome dream of being at a beach, to wake up, to turn to your spouse, wake them up and say, honey, go to sleep, join me in my dream and we can get a free vacation out of this. Well, of course not. That's, that's an impossible thing to do, right? You can't share dreams with other people because it's an internal thing happening. The same with hallucinations. They can't be experienced by groups of people. Now, the claim was that the 12 disciples saw Jesus when they were all together. Um, then it goes on to say, 500 brethren at one time saw Jesus. You can't have a group hallucination of 500 people. And and to be honest, you all could take the same uh, hallucinogen drug. Is that how you say that? Maybe not. The same type of drug that causes you to hallucinate. You could all drop acid or eat mushrooms or whatever. But you're still not going to hallucinate the same things. So this, this hallucination theory kind of falls apart a little bit. Uh, in my professor Michael Lacona's book, uh, The Historiographical Approach to the Resurrection of Jesus, uh, he has this quote in there. He was talking with uh, Gary A. Sibsey, who's a PhD licensed clinical psychologist at Piedmont Psychiatric Center. Uh, and he, uh, in in a personal email to my professor Michael Lacona, this is what he said about group hallucinations. Lacona asked him, have you ever experienced a uh, group hallucination? Have you ever seen one? Have you ever heard about one in research? Because this guy wrote the book on hallucinations, all right? And this is what uh, Dr. Sipsey said. Quote, I've surveyed the professional literature peer-reviewed journal articles and books written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. That is an event for which more than one person purportedly shared in a visual or other sensory perception where there was clearly no external referent, end quote so they they've never found any evidence documented of group hallucinations occurring now we can think of experiences around the world where people are are saying stuff has happened right like uh, often i think in um you know in south america there's um uh, a lot of ideas about you know the virgin mary appearing in a stain on the wall or in a tortilla burn things like that right um now think about this uh, I don't interpret the data of what's going on there to be the Virgin Mary showing up to people in, in an image on a wall or in a tortilla image. However, they're not hallucinating something. There is actually something on the wall, right? Some type of stain. There is actually a burn in the tortilla. Now, I would interpret the design of the burn differently, but they're not hallucinating There is an actual external referent that everyone is referring to in, look at that wall, look at that tortilla, it looks like this, therefore it must be. So there's a difference in interpreting the data, but it isn't a hallucination because there actually is something out there in the real world that everybody's referring to. Okay, So those don't count as group hallucinations, right? Those are group interpretations of something uh, that actually exists. So, in our society, it's important to think through the types of people who experience hallucinations. So, uh, 15% of the general population experiences hallucinations. Um, And most of the people who experience it have what are called hallucination prone personalities. Typically, more women than men experience hallucinations. Typically, it's older people that experience hallucinations way more than younger people. And 50% of hallucinations in our society are accounted for by seniors who are bereaving the loss of a loved one. Okay? Now let's think about that. It's not a lot of the population. Hallucination-prone personalities, mostly women, mostly older, and it's usually when they're bereaving the loss of a loved one. So did the disciples hallucinate the risen Jesus? Well, first of all, all of them were males, not females. Uh, They were all of different age groups, but none of them were old, right? They weren't seniors. Uh, They were definitely bereaving the loss of a loved one. I'll give you that. Did they all have uh, hallucination-prone personalities? Well, I don't think so. Um, They had many different types of personalities, right? 100% of them had this experience of seeing Jesus, though. Think about this. If it was a hallucination and a few of them saw it, that'd be interesting, but all of them claim to have seen it, right? If it's a hallucination, uh, you can't have a group hallucination, right? It's an impossibility. All of them also experienced this um, resurrected Jesus simultaneously. It wasn't like one guy saw him at one point and then another person experienced him when he was bereaving. They all saw him at the same time, right? And... They didn't just see him. They had multi-sensory modes of hallucination, if, if it was a hallucination. They talked with him, so they heard him, right? They saw him. They touched him, right? It talks about Peter hugging Jesus. It talks about Jesus inviting Thomas to touch the holes in his hand and the hole in his side. Um, they ate breakfast with him. You Remember that when he's cooking fish for them on the shores of the lake? Uh, and 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 so that would include smell, that would include taste. So there's hearing, there's touching, there's seeing, every type of sense that human being has, they experienced with the resurrected Jesus. That's highly, highly unlikely when it comes to hallucinations. So I don't think that this hallucination idea accounts very well for the resurrection of Jesus. it do, It doesn't help us very much at all because I don't think group hallucinations are, uh, something that can happen. And I don't think, based on what we know about hallucinations, that the disciples were good candidates for a hallucination. Not to mention, Jesus' enemy Paul hallucinated him too. So now, now you've got to explain why a guy who isn't bereaving the loss of a loved one—because Paul didn't love Jesus, he hated Jesus, he was killing his followers—why he has a hallucination? And hears and sees and right. I mean, that that doesn't make any sense. Same thing can kind of go with his brothers. They didn't really care about him. They weren't at his his uh, crucifixion. They they told him to go kill themselves. Why would they now have this experience, this hallucination? Um, hallucinations do not account for the um, the the resurrection of Jesus. Now now th- think about this. Uh, in addition to the disciples in addition to paul in addition to the brothers uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 paul's claiming that 500 brethren saw him at one time and it's really interesting what he says after he he mentions that he says now many of them have gone to sleep which means they've died but many of them are still alive he's like telling the corinthians go check it out yourself <laughs> go ask these people who experienced this it's not some type of shady business there it there's there's evidence that this actually occurred. Now, hallucinations at best can account for the appearances, but they don't account for the tomb being empty. They don't account for the fact that Pilate or um, the Pharisees or Herod or the Roman guards never exhumed Jesus' body. That'd be easy to do if it was a hallucination, right? They could take the body out and say, hey, look, uh, he's not dead. Or He's not alive. He's dead. Here's his body. Check it out. And they never do that. So hallucinations do not account for the tomb being empty, right? I don't think hallucinations really account for Paul and James' conversion at all. They weren't grieving anything. So the hallucination theory, which again is the best theory on the market, is pretty bad. <laughs> I mean it's, 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 uh, it's really, really bad. It doesn't explain very much of these facts we've established, and the ones it attempts to explain, it it doesn't explain. It rests solely on sometimes when people are bereaving the loss of a loved one, they have hallucinations, which I would say, yeah, I think that that happens. But what's really interesting is that people who are bereaving the loss of a loved one now and have a hallucination – of them, you know, say they came and visited them in their bedroom late at night, or they just felt comforted and they heard them say everything's okay, those types of things, nobody ever believes that that means resurrection. Everybody thinks, oh yeah, it was a nice dream, it was a vision, it was a hallucination. Nobody now who that happens to thinks, oh, my my husband is risen from the dead. So what could have possessed these guys to think that, Right? We we there's there must be more to the story. There must be more to why they'd be willing to die for this, because people now don't believe that a hallucination of a loved one who's who's died recently is resurrection. So the hallucination theory is is pretty bad to me, um, but it's it's still taken seriously in some academic circles. Um, on the internet, people will push that idea, but it's it's pretty bad once you start looking into what hallucinations are, how they work, and who has them. Now, the second theory that we're going to talk about today is still really popular, but it isn't taken seriously in academic circles at all, and it hasn't been for a really long time. This theory is called the swoon theory. The idea is this, that Jesus made it to the cross, but he didn't actually die on the cross, right? Some people will say he could have slipped into a coma, and the soldiers... uh, mistakenly thought that he was dead, but he actually wasn't. And so they let him off the cross while he was still alive. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came, and they wrapped him up, thinking he was dead, and they put him in the tomb. And the, the cold, damp tomb, lying there for three days, kind of revitalized Jesus so that he got up, and he, and he rolled the stone back, and he came out. So there's no need to believe in a resurrection because he didn't actually die. Now, this makes no sense based on <laughs> what we know of Roman crucifixion, and it also makes no logical sense, and, and that's what I want to talk about. Um, the, the scourging Jesus went through, the crucifixion, uh, highly unlikely a person could survive that. Highly unlikely that a person could survive that. It was an execution, um, me- it was an execution method, right? That's the whole purpose of the cross. So w- why couldn't he uh, survive that? Well, um, there is this uh, Journal of American Medical Association article that talks about all of the medical conditions that occurred and happened to Jesus as he went through scourging, as he went through uh, the crown of thorns, as he went through crucifixion, and what it would have done to his body. The conclusion from these experts is that crucifixion is death by asphyxiation, right? You're not breathing as you're hanging there. you got to keep pushing up and pulling up on the nail to catch a breath and then sink back down and exhale. And so every time you want to breathe, you have to push up and come back down and push up and come back down. Um, That's why um, we know Roman uh, soldiers would break people's legs so they couldn't keep pushing up. It would speed up death. So if you can't push up to breathe, you can't breathe, and eventually you uh, are asphyxiated. Um, Now, the other thing that's important to know is that uh, Roman soldiers— would um, be punished with the punishment of a prisoner that escaped. So that, mean, that means that these executioners, these Roman uh, killers, would have to pay the penalty of death if they let a crucified victim off of the cross. That's why they would break their legs, or in Jesus' case, stab him through the heart to make sure he's dead. Now think about this. If a guy hasn't been breathing for an hour, you can be pretty sure that he's dead. Right, It doesn't take a a rocket scientist to recognize death, not to mention the Roman soldiers, these guys that were putting Jesus on the cross. This is what they did for their job. They were professional executioners. They knew what dead looked like. But because they wanted to be sure, they stabbed him through the heart. Now, guy's not breathing for a while, and I stab him through the heart. Yeah, he's dead, right? (laughs) There's no way Jesus is getting off the cross, alive I think that that is just a uh, a horrible idea that doesn't make uh, any sense any sense at all now some people will say well we do know that crucified victims lived we do have an account that crucified victims made it and they're right. There actually is an account of this, and I'd like to read it to you. Uh, this comes from The Life of Josephus, section 75. Uh, Josephus was a, um, a Jewish historian. He grew up uh, in Israel, and um, when uh, Rome came down and kind of conquered Israel uh, in the first century, Josephus um, uh, sided with Rome And I think it was Vespasian that he told that he was going to become the emperor, which he did. So Vespasian liked him. And so Josephus becomes kind of a a court historian for the Roman Empire. He records some stuff of the Jews, but also of Rome. And um, what happened was uh, when Rome and, and Titus uh, went down to Jerusalem to kind of ransack sa- it at the end of the uh, 60s, you know, and in 70 AD everything fell and the temple was destroyed, uh, Josephus went with them and they gave him um, a really cool privilege because they liked him so much. They said, hey, listen, we know you got a lot of friends and family here. If you know of anybody who, who you want to save from the wrath of Rome, go get them. And they can come and, and be saved, um, and so that that's that's what's happening um, in this account. So I want to read to you. I want to read to you what Josephus says. Quote: When I also went once to the temple by the permission of Titus, where there were a great multitude of captive women and children, I got all those that I remembered as among my own friends and acquaintances to be set free, being in number about one hundred and ninety. And so I delivered them without their paying any price of redemption and restored them to their former fortune. And when I was sent by Titus Caesar with ceruleans and a thousand horsemen to a certain village called Thacoa in order to know whether it were a place fit for a camp, as I came back, I saw many captives crucified and remembered three of them as my former acquaintance. I was very sorry at this in my mind and went with tears in my eyes to Titus and told him of them. So he immediately commanded them to be taken down and to have the greatest care taken of them in order to their recovery. Yet two of them died under the physician's hands while the third one recovered. Okay, that is an account we have of somebody surviving crucifixion. Now, notice a couple of things, uh, the crucifixion was shortened and not taken out to completion and, and have them asphyxiated because uh, Josephus uh, had them removed because he knew that they were his friends. And so he went to Titus and Titus said, yeah, take them off the cross. So they weren't left up there to asphyxiate, suffocate, right? Also, the victims were given the best medical attention available. That's literally <laughs> what it says. The greatest care taken of them in order to their recovery. The best medical attention that Rome had to offer, these three guys were given. And what happened? Two of them still died, and only one lived. This is not a true comparison with the crucifixion of Jesus. It doesn't mention that these men had been scourged first, which was horrendous, Um, lacerations of your back and bleeding out, hypovolemic shock that would occur. Uh, None of that is mentioned of these men. And yet still, with the best medical care available and the shortened crucifixion, two out of three still die. Two out of three still die. Now, some people are trying to say, well, listen, they thought Jesus was dead. They stabbed him through the heart. He hadn't breathed for a while, and he was put in a room by himself, and that's what helped him get better. Now think about this. Is that what we do with people in critical medical condition today? We say, hey, you know what the best thing we can do for them is? Let's, uh, let's clean their body up off the street from the accident that they just had, and we'll just put them in a room by themselves for three days, and that will help them get better. No way! We care for them. We bandage them. We get IVs going, right? We make sure they're breathing, all this stuff. You don't just leave somebody alone in an empty room for a few days and think they'll get better. That's a sure way for them to die. So this idea that he was mistakenly thought dead but he actually wasn't, and he didn't just trick the Roman soldiers, but he also tricked his friends who buried him. And then they wrapped him up and put him in a room by himself for a few days, and then miraculously he he got better. Well, not miraculously, right? Naturalistically, they would say. <laughs> he got better. Come on! Like, that is a crazy, crazy idea, especially when we have a historical uh, account where... Three guys were taken off the crucifixion before they asphyxiated, and yet two out of three still died, even with the best medical care. I think that this argument from Josephus actually is in our favor to show, yeah, it was a really slim chance you survived crucifixion once you got hung up there. Now, the swoon theory is really popular on the internet. People are still trying to act like this is a great idea. It's a really bad idea. Academically, nobody takes it seriously. And the reason that nobody takes it seriously is because of a man named David Strauss. He lived at the end of the 1800s, and he was a critic of the resurrection. He did not believe Jesus rose from the dead at all. But he wrote a critique of The swoon theory saying that not only is the medical side problematic, but the logical side is the real problem. The swoon theory is not uh, not a problem medically. It is. But the real problem is it logically makes no sense. So David Strauss's argument was this. He claimed it was not plausible to believe that Jesus, after being scourged and after being crucified, woke up in the tomb— rolled away a two-ton stone with pierced hands and pierced feet, somehow fought off some Roman soldiers. Then he walked a few blocks to present himself to his disciples as the risen Lord. Now, Strauss says, listen, even if that happened, the disciples would never believe he was the resurrected king, right? Upon seeing this pale, wounded, weak, bloody, crusted Jesus, would they believe he was risen from the dead? No way. They would think, we need to get you medical attention. We need to clean up your wounds. Come in here. Let us help you, right? They wouldn't think he'd been resurrected. They think he'd escaped death in that condition. And this is a non-Christian's account that, that the swoon theory is in logical, uh, a logical problem. It's a mess. And David Strauss is actually the guy who proposed the hallucination theory. So he tore down the swoon theory and then said, I think hallucination is a much better explanation. So the, the swoon theory is, is a real problem. Now here's the deal. What does it account for if it, if it, if it stands up, which it doesn't? But let's just say, okay, that's a decent argument, which it isn't. What would it account for? Well, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. That's a fact of history, everybody admits. This tries to undercut that and say, well, that's not actually what happened. But it doesn't have any evidence whatsoever to point towards that. Um, It would account like halfway maybe that the disciples believed he rose from the dead it would account for they saw him after his crucifixion but i don't think it could could convince them that he rose from the dead definitely couldn't convince paul that he rose from the dead it would account for the empty tomb that's for sure right it would account that the tomb's empty but then you still got the problem of really this this battered and bruised guy who fainted and couldn't even carry his own cross that guy rolled away this huge stone and that that makes no sense And um, I don't think it accounts for James' conversion either. If his brother all bloodied and messed up, showed up to him, I mean crippled, right? Uh, Your hands being a mess, shoulders out of socket. um, If if that guy showed up to you, how could he convince you that he's God? That wouldn't convince your brother, that wouldn't convince your enemy that you're God. So the swoon theory is pretty bad. Um, Doesn't make sense of even what it's attempting to explain. Now the hallucination theory and the swoon theory, to be honest with you, are two of the best naturalistic theories out there, and they're horrible. They don't account for, for very much of, of anything. Now some people like to propose a different theory, which is called the stolen body theory. This idea is that the disciples stole the body. Now think about this. this has gone, uh, this theory has gone all the way back, to the discovery of the empty tomb by the Pharisees, you remember when we were reading in Matthew, they told the they told the Roman soldiers, "Hey, listen! If anybody asks, you just tell them the disciples came at night and overpowered you and stole the body." Right? The fishermen came and took on the mercenaries and beat them, <laughs> and then stole the body uh, from the from the strongest uh, you know empire in the world. <laughs> they came and they took the body from you. Oh, how ridiculous is that? Now, the real problem with this theory is the disciples seem to be really scared chickens and not very good fighters. You remember when Jesus was in Gethsemane and uh, they came to arrest him and Peter wakes up from his sleep and takes out his sword and he's trying to defend Jesus and the best he can do is hack off a guy's ear. Remember that? Like, that's bad aim, man. Like, you probably will hurt yourself with a sword. You shouldn't have that with you. Um, The best he could do is hack off a guy's ear, and not even an important guy. It was like one of the servants, right? Um, So you're telling me that guy and his friends were the ones who, who took on mercenaries and won? I don't think so. But the real problem comes with the disciples being willing to die for the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. If they, in fact, were the ones who stole the body, There's no way that all of them would willingly die in martyrdom for the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. They would have squealed. Somebody would have talked. There's no way they all would have died for a lie, for something that they knew was a lie. They could have been mistaken, but they actually believed it to be true. No way anybody's tortured and imprisoned, beaten, and eventually killed for something that they know they made up. One of them would have squealed. One of them would have squealed. So I don't think that that really accounts. Now, some people will say, well, somebody else stole the body. And it's like, okay, well, who who would want to do that? And who would have the power to do that? Um, so now what people are doing is they're making up stories that could have happened, right? Well, what if... But the problem with that is there's not any evidence at all for it. There's no historical accounts of that. There's nobody at the time saying that's what happened. Um, So now we're just making up stories, and that's not doing history very well. We could all make up stories about the past, right? That George Washington crossed the Delaware on a flying saucer, not in a boat, right? Um, That at Valley Forge, uh, the the snow was brought on by the, the, the white witch from Narnia, and that's why it was such a brutal winter. I mean, we can make up anything we want. But that doesn't prove anything. We need evidence. We need multiple witnesses talking about the same thing. If an enemy says the same thing occurred, that's pretty good evidence, right? Uh, We need uh, probability, not just possibility, right? It's possible to say anything. But what's probable? And that's what we're trying to look at when we piece together events from the past. So the stolen body theory doesn't make any sense. First of all, let's just say it occurred. It makes sense of the empty tomb. It doesn't explain why the disciples all died for something they knew was a lie that they made up. It explains nothing about Jesus' brother James converting. And it explains nothing about his enemy Paul converting, right? Because if the body's stolen, it means he's still dead. So who or what appeared to James and appeared to 500 people at one time and appeared to Paul? Makes no sense. So it doesn't really account for all the facts that we have. Now, some people like to say, well, it wasn't a stolen body, but um, the, the women uh, went to the wrong tomb. That's it. The women went to the wrong tomb, and upon finding it empty, they concluded that Jesus rose from the dead. There's a lot of problems uh, with this. Um, even if they had gone to the wrong tomb, it doesn't account for their belief that they saw Jesus. Right? And the women say it, and uh, his followers say it, and his enemies say it, and his brothers say it, and 500 brethren at one time. So even if they went to the wrong tomb, it doesn't account for all of the appearances at all. Um, The other thing is, when you read the New Testament, his followers weren't convinced that Jesus rose from the dead because his tomb was empty. Right? When the women come and they say, Listen, he's risen. His tomb's empty. The followers are like, the disciples go, "Eh." and in Luke it says that they thought these were idle tales, right? So Paul and John run, or Peter and John run to the tomb. They get in there and it says they were perplexed and they didn't know what was going on. They didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a tomb was empty. In fact, you remember in one account, Mary Magdalene, uh, Jesus comes to talk to her and it says she thought he was the gardener and she asks him, where have you moved the body? The first thought wasn't, oh, he rose from the dead. The first thought was somebody moved him, <laughs> right? So even if they went to the wrong tomb, which they which is preposterous, but even if they did, it doesn't account for the appearances, right? Not to mention these women uh, a few days earlier had gone to this tomb to put him in. They knew where it was. Not to mention it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, which means he for sure would have known where it was, Right and it said it was a new tomb, right, hewn out of rock, it was a nice rich man's tomb, it would be very easy to find again. And, and now here's the thing. Let's say they went to the wrong tomb, and for two weeks they're all mistaken. Um, it doesn't explain the appearances, but don't you think as they're preaching this that people would have gone to check it out? in the town that it happened in? Or would they just have been like, oh yeah, they must be telling the truth, I'm not going to go look? I mean, Joseph of Arimathea for sure would have looked, and if he would have found it still full, I I think he might have said something. I also think that uh, Pilate, Herod, all of those guys would have gone and gotten Jesus' body and pulled it out and said, no, look, here's the dude we crucified, here's all the wounds that we gave him, this is him. We have no account of that happening anywhere in any historical document. Everything points to that he rose from the dead. So the, the wrong tomb theory is is really a problem. It doesn't make a lot of sense uh, at all of the facts of history. Now, there's there's uh, other theories that are out there, such as the twin theory, right? Jesus had a twin, and so he got killed, but then the twin shows up and starts telling people he's Jesus, risen from the dead. Um <laughs> <laughs> Some people call it the Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen theory. Um, it's it's pretty bad uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, Jesus' mom would have known if he had a twin, I think. I'm pretty sure she would have. The brothers probably would have known there was this twin. Uh, even if you were a twin uh, and you hadn't been around, right, because you can't risk other people seeing you, uh, how could you show up and know the names of the disciples and know what they had done to you and challenge them on things and have the same demeanor and character and speaking and, and all of that stuff like it, it it really falls short that a twin could convince his closest followers and his family that he was the same guy uh, as Jesus so that, that theory uh, cracks me up it's it's kind of a mess we're not going to spend much time on it but if you just think if you just think through it it's it's not very good. Uh, it's not very good at all. Now, the last theory I want to talk about that gets proposed is is this. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, when he was at Oxford between the years of uh, 1942 and 1944, he made a series of radio broadcasts. Uh, and then in 1952, these broadcasts were put into a book— and they were put in under uh, the, the title Mere Christianity. And if you haven't read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, you should. It is phenomenal. It's like one of those books you should read once every year. I mean, this is a great, great book. So highly recommend C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity. Um, This book is a classic uh, to Christians. It helped a lot of people understand the basis and rationale of Christianity. Um, But one of the arguments that's in this book is called C.S. Lewis's Trilemma. And this is the argument that he makes in there, which is very, very profound. He says, listen, Jesus has to be one of three things. Either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord, right? Liar, lunatic, Lord. And what he means by that is this. Either Jesus was preaching that he was God, and he was telling people he was God's son, and he was promising resurrection from the dead, but he was just a liar, and he wasn't who he said he was. That's an option we have. Or he really believed he was that person, but he was a crazy man. So he wasn't lying, but he was crazy, and that wasn't who he was at all. So either he intentionally lied or he unintentionally misled people because he was insane or he is who he said he is. I think that's a really strong argument, right? He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, and he's either the Lord. Now, the liar motif is tough to establish because of his high moral character and what he says and that he was sinless and spotless and blameless and that people were listening to him teach about virtues. Um, That really seems hard that the guy would be a big time liar. Not to mention he didn't get really anything out of it. He didn't get sex, power or money out of his position, which is usually what people lie for. Um, He didn't get any of that. So maybe he's not a liar, but what about being a lunatic? Well, it seems really difficult that he'd be a crazy man and be able to have such a following, (laughs) right, and be able to confound the smartest people of his day and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, that, That doesn't make a lot of sense that he was an insane human being. Somebody might have picked up on that, right? And so the conclusion that Lewis comes to is he must be who he said he is. That's the only thing that makes sense. Well, recently, there's been a new development that says, listen, Jesus isn't a liar, he isn't a lunatic, but he isn't the Lord. He is, the fourth L, a legend. Jesus is a legend, all right? So this is an interesting argument. Is Jesus, are the tales of Jesus in the New Testament legendary? Are they made up? Is Jesus a Peter Pan or a Robin Hood uh, type figure, uh, John Dominic Crossan, in his book *A Tale of Two Gods*, who um, he's he's from the Jesus Seminar, which is a highly skeptical group of scholars who hi, who doubt that hardly anything in the New Testament is legitimate. Uh, this is what he says in his book *A Tale of Two Gods*: Quote, "Jesus's divine origins are just as fictional or mythological as those of Octavius, and neither should be taken literally. Both must be taken." metaphorically, all right? That's his opinion. Bart Ehrman, who is a uh, skeptical scholar uh, in his book Jesus Interrupted, said, "...I had come to realize that Jesus's divinity was part of John's theology, not a part of his own teaching." And what he's getting at there is John was written in, you know, 90s, in, in 95 AD, which is 65 years after the events. And so legend had developed over that time, and it's embellished, and it's it's this, it's this uh, John theology of what the church was teaching. It isn't a historical account of what was happening, because over 65 years, legend developed. Um, later in, in his book, Jesus Interrupted, Bart Ehrman says this, quote, Jesus probably never called himself God. And to make my point, I suggest that in fact there were not three options but four, liar, lunatic, lord, or legend. Of course I chose the fourth word to maintain the alliteration. What I meant was not that Jesus himself was a legend, of course not. I certainly believe that he existed and that we can say some things about him. What I meant was that the idea that he called himself God was a legend which I believe it is. This means that he doesn't have to be either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He could be a first-century Palestinian Jew who had a message to proclaim other than his own divinity. Okay, so that is another uh, proposal of Jesus being God, Jesus rising from the dead, that these are legendary accounts. Uh, this is kind of a problem, though. Um, a, a couple of things with this. Um. The account in 1 Corinthians 15, which we talked about on previous episodes, is, is somewhere between six months to three years after the, the death of Jesus in, in 30 AD. So John's theology, it doesn't matter because we have that creed that is that old that goes back to the time of when this occurred. And people were saying, what about him? He died? He was buried, he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to a whole bunch of people. All right, We also have them worshiping Jesus as God. One of the earliest Christian creeds found in the New Testament is Jesus is Lord. And the word Lord, Kyrios in Greek, is the same word that when they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, in what's called the Septuagint, they used the word Kyrios, Lord, when they translated the word Yahweh. So New Testament believers calling Jesus Kyrios meant Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is one of the earliest Christian creeds that we have embedded in the documents of the New Testament. They believed he was God from the beginning. There isn't enough time for legendary accounts to occur. Now some people love to say, you know, um, well, you know, over time, these stories were told over and over and over again, and they grew and they were legendary. Um, This telephone game analogy comes up, right? When you play, have you ever played that game telephone with kids, where somebody says something in the ear of the next person, and then they say it to the next person, and they say it to the next person, and inevitably, uh, the message gets changed. And then the last person says what they heard, and everyone laughs, right? It's a fun, uh, silly game. Well, is that what occurred with these uh, Gospels? I would say no. I would say because we have this oral Jesus tradition. In this culture, um, 90% of the people in Palestine were illiterate at the time. And so um, they didn't write stuff down, but they memorized things probably a lot better than we do because we rely on on tools such as the Internet and books and things like that. But they didn't have that kind of stuff. But also, you know, is 30 years— Um, is 65 years with the book of John. Is that enough time for legendary accounts to develop? Well, the thing is, John's not the only book that talks about Jesus being God. Mark, the first gospel written, talks about it. In in Mark chapter 14, Jesus claims to be divinity four different times when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin. And so the idea that Jesus is God isn't only found in John. (laughs) It's found earlier on than that. And Bart Ehrman, he knows that. But is thirty years enough for legendary accounts to develop? Well, not about not about important things. Now think about this: these guys were willing to die for this belief. It's important to them, right? It's a big deal to them. They're going around the world telling other people about this event. It's huge to them. Um, I, I think about tragic events that have happened in my life, even national tragic events, right? Like um, Hurricane Katrina in 2006, 2005, 2006. Uh, I can't convince people that didn't happen. I couldn't change the narrative and say, yeah, Hurricane Katrina occurred off the coast of California – not in Louisiana and Mississippi. People would say, no, 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 no. You're way off there. And it's not because they have newspaper clippings or videos of it. Because they remember, no, I lived in New Orleans. I know what happened. It flooded. Like That was awful, right? You think of the tragic events on September 11th. I can't convince people that that didn't occur. Everyone knows it occurs. Everyone remembers where they were at the day it occurred. There's some things that you can't make into legendary accounts, whether it's been 20 years or 30 years, right? There's things that I remember from longer than 30 years ago. Uh, there just are. And and now the thing is this. you got a, a bunch of people who witnessed it, such as things like September 11th, right? Uh, and that's what we have with the resurrection of Jesus. So the idea that these legendary accounts developed, I just I don't buy it because there was a whole group of people that saw these things. And if somebody was twisting... And, and manipulating what actually happened, I think that a group would say, nope, that's not how it went down, nope, that's not what happened, and that, that aberrant idea, that change in the story, never would get off the ground. Nobody would trust it because so many people would say, no, I was there, that isn't what occurred. So the telephone gain analogy, it, it really doesn't make uh, that much sense at all. This idea that Jesus is a legendary account uh, doesn't really work too well. Um, because why would disciples be willing to die, not get sex, money, or power for something that they completely made up? It makes no sense. Why would Paul change? If it, think about this, legendary accounts means not true. There's no reason for it. Why would he convert? It doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus' brother James convert? It makes no sense. Legend doesn't help us with the empty tomb, right? If people think about this, even if 20 years later people were saying, oh yeah, hey, that guy actually came out of the ground. Wouldn't everybody go, no, he didn't. That doesn't make sense. That that didn't happen. 20 years after the resurrection, we have Paul all around the world preaching and telling people about what happened to Jesus. It didn't get squashed in Jerusalem because the tomb was actually empty. So this legendary account um, hypothesis is is pretty, pretty bad. And these are the best on the market. These are the best naturalistic explanations to what actually happened 2,000 years ago with this guy, Jesus Christ. I think that the evidence is on our side. for for the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That's the thing that makes sense of all the facts. That's the thing that makes sense of why his disciples would be willing to die. That's what makes sense of somebody converting from strict Judaism to becoming a Christian and throwing their career and throwing their life away and dying for it, right? That's what makes sense of somebody believing their brother to be God. That's what makes sense of the empty tomb, and that's what makes sense of he actually died. So how does all this stuff fit together? The resurrection of Jesus makes sense of all of it. These other hypotheses at best answer one or two of those facts. So you so what you'd have to do is you'd have to have multiple of these um, of these naturalistic explanations occurring at the same time, which even makes it more improbable, right? The other problem with that is some of them will contradict the others, right? Stolen body and hallucination can't go together. Why? Well, because the disciples are said to hallucinate it and really believe it, a stolen body says they stole it and knew they were lying. Okay, well, so the, those two things don't go together. So if it's a hallucination, how do you account for the empty tomb? If it's a stolen body, how do you account for them actually dying? You see the problems that occur when we even try to mix these together. They don't make sense. I think the thing that makes the most sense of the events we have from history is that this guy actually rose from the dead. And if he actually rose from the dead, that leaves us at a spot of having to take his message seriously because nobody else has ever done something like this. Nobody else has ever claimed to be who Jesus claimed to be and backed it up with actions, backed it up with some proof. And so if you're out there and you're skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus uh, because you've already turned off the idea that supernatural events can happen, I really would beg you to reconsider and follow the evidence where it leads. You should have an open mind towards this, right? A lot of times Christians get accused of not having an open mind, and I think it's the exact opposite. I'm open to a worldview where supernatural entities do exist, I'm not closed off to that, right? And I think we should look at evidence and go where the evidence leads us. And so if you're out there and you have not uh, seriously considered the claims of Jesus uh, backed up by this evidence of something very, very amazing that happened in the resurrection of him, uh, I, I challenge you to do so to investigate Jesus, to think through it. One of the one of the projects I always give my class when I teach on the resurrection is try to come up with an alternative theory that doesn't involve Jesus rising from the dead that accounts for the five facts that we have. You can't do it. You're making up stories about aliens or about, you know, Judas was really a good guy and then Peter hated him and so they crucified Judas and Jesus' place, and then Jesus was okay with lying to everyone and came out. I mean, you come up with these crazy, outrageous stories that have no evidence and actually are dismantled by the proofs that we do have. So I encourage you, investigate who Jesus is. If he is the God of the universe, his... Uh, his reputation can stand up to our scrutiny. Even as Christians, we can press hard into truth. We can think deeply. We can investigate stuff. God's not afraid of that. He knows how to prove himself. He knows how to answer our questions. He knows what we're going to ask even before we ask it. And he wants us to know that he has answers. He's a good God who wants to show us who he is. So I encourage you, investigate the claims of Jesus. But as Christians, be confident that we have good reasons to believe what we believe. That's the whole point of this podcast. Tyler and I do this because we want to equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and to be confident in their faith. We have a very reasonable faith that makes sense. It is not a blind faith. It is not a leap into the dark in fairy tales. It is a reasonable faith that's based on a historic event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope that this podcast has been helpful. I hope that you won't just um, be encouraged by this, but you'll go out and you'll use these truths. People need to hear the reasons that Christians have for believing Christianity is valid. So take what we've we've taught you here, uh, re-listen to the podcast, maybe take notes, and go out and share it with other people. We're called to be Jesus' witnesses, his ambassadors, making an appeal to others and bringing the message of reconciliation to them. That's our task as Christians. So be encouraged, but then be proactive in sharing your faith with other people. Thanks so much for being with us today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. We will be back next week.
1: You have been listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast ministry of Desert Springs Community Church in Goodyear, Arizona. For more information, visit our website at dscchurch.com.